to discipleship. That's right. We're on a road to discipleship, and we've been studying Mark 8 through 10, mining a lot of the truths that God has for us and the understanding of what it means to be a disciple. And so we've spoken of it as being on the road to discipleship. And last week, I referenced that the road to discipleship necessarily involves a journey. Do you remember? The journey to where? If we are to follow Jesus, and you think about the story of Jesus, and where he traveled in Scripture, Jesus was on a particular journey with a definite destination. Where was he headed? Jerusalem. I want you to get those two things, although they sound very simple. I want you to hear those two and hold on to them. Because as Christians, we are called to be on the road to discipleship. We are called to make disciples. That's what Jesus told his, his first disciples just before he ascended to be with the Father. He said, you're to make disciples. Go and make disciples. And we said last week and other times, we can't make disciples unless we are disciples, right? And you, you don't just become a disciple. I mean, you can say, I want to start following Jesus. You can say, I believe in Jesus. I accept him as my Savior. I want to learn how to live with him as Lord. But it doesn't just happen overnight. It's a process. And so we liken it to a road that we're traveling. A road to discipleship. And again, when you think about what is discipleship, what does it mean to be a disciple? of Jesus in particular, then we have to follow him. And that means we have to go where he went, go where he leads to follow him. Jesus went to Jerusalem. And if this is the first time you're, you're tuning in to watch us by video, or maybe you, you're, you've not been here with us before or haven't been here in a while, then you might be asking yourself, why is it necessary for us to go to Jerusalem? And that's a great question, so let me explain that to you. I don't mean literally go to Jerusalem, although that would be a great learning experience for you. Uh, what I'm talking about going to Jerusalem is thinking about why Jesus went to Jerusalem. What was in Jerusalem that called Jesus or led Jesus or was the reason for him going there? And again, if you have studied at all Jesus' purpose in coming, as a, as a man, and, and God coming in the person of Jesus, you have to know that his destination all along has been to confront evil. His, his purpose was to come and be God among us, and God being among us was to overcome the evil and the barrier between us and God and to make a way for us to be able to come back to God. And we do that through Jesus, but he... He didn't just say, I'm doing this for you. Hope the rest of your life is good. He said, follow me. Follow me. And his purpose is to lead us with him to the reason why he went to Jerusalem. It's to learn to surrender ourselves. It's to learn to follow his way. And his way is the way that the Father gave him. It's a critical part of discipleship. It sounds really simple. It sounds like a gimmick. 
you know, that the pastor stands up in front of you each week and says, okay, we're on the road to, and you say discipleship, and we say, and that involves a journey to, and you say Jerusalem, and we all laugh, and then we move on, and we think, I wonder how many more times he's going to ask us that. But the truth is, I'm going to keep asking it because I want you to get it. As a Christian, our primary duty, our primary responsibility is to follow Jesus. You could say we're here to glorify God. Yes, that's what Jesus was doing. You're here, you can say we're, we're this, we're that, we're this, we're that. No matter what you mention, no matter what you think of is the purpose of a Christian. It always involves discipleship, being a disciple. And I say that because there's so many parts of being in a church. There's so many different activities we get involved in. There's so many different aspects of being a Christian. When you think about the, the things that we do and the things that we say and what we involve ourselves in. But I think we have really taken a step back from being serious about discipleship. Being disciples. And I suspect that's why we have not done as well in recent years, maybe a lot longer than that, in making disciples. It's a very serious topic. <clears throat> we are called by our Lord to make disciples. And you can't do that unless you are one and you're actively following Jesus. Now, let me ask you another question, not quite so obvious maybe, but hopefully one that, you'll, that will resonate with you. There's a necessary component. Well, there's a lot of necessary components. Maybe that's an unfair question. In order to follow someone you can't see, in order to worship a God we can't see, what do we have to do? What does it require on our part? Someone last week said faith. Absolutely. I want to push on a different word this morning. Not different in concept, but different in the way we tend to use it. We often say faith, and a lot of times I think we say faith, meaning what do we believe? That's important. But I would argue, and I challenge you this morning to consider this. A necessary, can't get by without it, requirement to be a successful Christian <clears throat> is trust. No matter who you are, what you're involved in, where you've come from, you have to trust. Easy to do, right? It's one of the most critical things that we get if we're going to be a Christian. How vital it is that we trust. We learn to trust how difficult it is. Now you and I both know, I mean, we could talk if we were in a sermon, if we were just out on the, out on the street and we met in a coffee shop or wherever, we could talk about trust all day long because trust has been a big issue in our country for, for some time now. In what way? The fact that it's missing, right? How much we have lost trust in so many ways and, and deservedly. But to be a disciple, if you have to trust, then we need to examine what is trust and how do we gain it? Why is it so important? 
And I could talk to you about a number of different things regarding trust today, but let me throw out a few, and they're a little lightweight, but I want to get your mind going with regard to trust. What do we trust? Well, we trust people, right? We trust each other. We trust special relationships we have in our lives. We trust maybe a spouse or maybe a friend, maybe a parent or a child or a sibling, maybe a co-worker. We trust relationships that we have, people who are close to us. That's necessary to accomplish whatever it is we're trying to accomplish together. And I think when we think of trust, that's the first thing that comes to our mind. But there are other ways in which we trust. There are other things that we trust. Let me give you a really silly one. But it is a way we think of trust. You ever been to a vending machine? Yeah, what do you think of when you go to a vending machine? Well, the obvious thing is you're hungry, right? You want to get something out of the vending machine if it's that, a snack machine. And what do you do? You pick out what you want, you put your money in, you push the button, and what do you expect to happen? Whatever, yeah, you get whatever you wanted. You're trusting that vending machine to do its job, aren't you? You're trusting that when you put the money in and you push the selection, whatever you've picked comes down. And what do we do when we don't get it? Yeah, oftentimes we rock the machine, don't we? And our trust takes a hit, doesn't it? Because our trust in that silly situation is that a process will work. It's designed to do this. If I do this, that will happen. If that doesn't happen, there's something wrong with the process. The machine can't be trusted anymore. I want you to think about that as silly of an example or as lightweight as that may be because, in fact, I think there's a lot for us to learn about that example and how we relate to God. We have certain expectations of God, don't we? We have certain expectations about what He's going to do and how our relationship's going to work. And you might say, well, Reed, this is an interesting conversation, but what in the world does this have to do with being a disciple and what in the world does this have to do with Scripture, which we spend so much time talking about every Sunday? Friends, I think it has a lot to do with it. You may be familiar with a particular individual in Scripture that we all associate with a particular thing. That thing is suffering. Who's the individual we associate with it? Jesus. There's another character right behind Jesus that we associate with suffering. Matter of fact, we've got a whole book on his suffering. Job. And what do we think about when we think of Job? May it never be me. Right? Are you familiar with the book of Job? It's a challenging book. It's not one that many people pick up and read as devotional material. But it's very important. It has an incredibly important message for those who want to be a disciple of Jesus. Let me tell you just very briefly, 
very briefly, what is the book of Job about? More importantly, what is the character? What is Job about? Job was a faithful servant of God. And in some sort of agreement that happened between God and the Satan, the one we call the Satan, there was an agreement or an arrangement made where God allowed Satan to really afflict Job. Job had afflictions like he had camels and sheep and, and oxen taken from him and all of his servants killed. Then the next step, he had all of his children killed. Immense suffering. It's a really hard first chapter or two of Job to read. And if you want to understand that God knows something about suffering and the people in the Bible know something about suffering, I encourage you to read Job. Because in the first chapter or two, you get this story. And then for 30-something chapters, you get this discussion that takes place just like you and I do when we're struggling and suffering. Wonder what happened. Wonder what caused this. Wonder what I did. Wonder what somebody else did. Why do we do that? When you're suffering or I'm suffering and we're talking about it, why do we get into arguing over what took place or trying to figure out what happened that created that suffering? Because we're not supposed to suffer. There must be something that caused it. We shouldn't have suffering. No one expects suffering to just be a normal experience. And when suffering happens, we're looking for answers. We're looking for an explanation. We are demanding an understanding that leads to change so that we don't repeat this suffering. That's what Job's friends do. They talk to him repeatedly about all of what must have happened that has contributed to his suffering. Now friends, there's trust involved in that. There's trust in a system that apparently has produced a result that we don't want. We're trusting. That's why we ask, what happened here? Because something must have happened. We wouldn't just suffer for no reason. And if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus and you're a good person, well, suffering shouldn't just happen. And so we begin to question and if we were completely honest, most of us move from questioning about ourselves and maybe the people that we're around, the people that we're involved in why or the what of the suffering. But if it continues and it gets deeper and more and more painful and we see less and less of an answer, it becomes a deeper trust issue. Suffering becomes a trust issue. In Job's case, he continues to talk to his friends and push back against their arguments. Push back against their accusations that it must be something that he did or something that he thought that was incorrect. Job continues to push back, insisting that he is a good and faithful person. Eventually, it gets to him. And Job basically says, I wish God would answer. 
I wish God would explain himself. You can find this in Job chapter 31, and I invite you to turn there. Job 31, if you have your Bible or you find it on your device, Job 31 in particular, verse 35. After all of this agonizing and all of this discussion back and forth, defending himself, he finally reaches the place where he says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I, sound, I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as a ruler. In other words, if I have in fact done something wrong, then let God present me with a list. Let him present charges against me. Let him explain to me why I am suffering like I am. Because I've got a defense ready for him. If my, it continues, if my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, in other words, if I had done something wrong, jump down to verse 40, then let the briars come up instead of wheat and stinkwood instead of barley. It's agricultural language for let me pay the price if someone can explain to me, someone, what I've done wrong. You might think, wow, be careful, Job. You're really playing with fire here. And yet, if we're honest, most of us at one time or another have run across in our own lives or someone we care about deeply suffering that pushes us to the brink and makes us wonder, what's going on in the heavens? What's going on with God? Did I do something? Am I off here, Lord? Do I need to confess and repent for something? Is it something that I did or didn't do? Because just like that vending machine, there's certain things that we expect to work. And if I live a good life and I don't do any of the really horrible things and I'm somewhat faithful to the Lord, then good things are supposed to happen. And I'm not supposed to go through intense suffering. Surely, something went wrong. And it challenges my trust. Maybe it challenges your trust in yourself. Maybe it challenges your trust in God. Are you with me? It's the age-old question. If he's a good God, why does he let bad things happen? to good people. It's a matter of trust. And if you continue reading through the next several chapters of Job, you reach a place in verse 38, chapter 38, excuse me, where the Lord finally answers. He meets Job in the answer. But it's not like you might expect. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? 
Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? And on and on. And if you read all of 38 and into 39, what you find is that God is questioning Job's knowledge and presence at the beginning when he designed and created all things. And remarkably, it's creatures and the earth and all the things except humans. Humans don't really get mentioned in here. But God is pushing Job to consider how did all this begin? How did it come about? Interestingly, nowhere in the Lord's response does he challenge Job on doing wrong. Nowhere in here does he list specific things that Job did wrong. And in fact, he meets Job in an answer that Job wasn't expecting, but it's exactly what Job needed. The reason I read that passage in Job 31 is because the first thing Job said was, I wish someone would hear me. And God hears him. And in fact, what Job is yearning for is the renewal of the relationship because in all that struggling, all that agony, he feels separated from him. And the fact that God answers and answers and answers and answers. He opens up Job's imagination to who God is, how vast his ways are. And it's a way of saying you may not understand all the little details that happen in your lives. But remember who I am. Really, remember who I am and trust me. It's a hard thing to do because we want answers. We want to be able to explain. If I do this, that's supposed to happen. And when it doesn't, it really messes me up. But it's our existence. It is our way. Because trust wouldn't be trust if we could guarantee it. If we could work it out ourselves, we wouldn't have to trust anybody else. Certainly not somebody we can't see. At the end of Job, he gives a remarkable response after suffering the way he did. And then hearing the Lord challenge him to really remember who God is. When the Lord challenges him to consider the vast difference between who God is and who Job and who we are. Job responds at the beginning of chapter 40, I'm unworthy. And at the end, and at the end of Job in, in chapter 40, 42. He says to the Lord, I know 
that you can do all things. His mind has been racing with all that God has designed and done far beyond his ability to comprehend. And he says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? In other words, who is this that challenges me? And he says about himself, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful to me for me to know. Listen now and I will speak. Is what the Lord said. I will question you and you shall answer me. And Job says, my ears have heard you. My ears had heard you. But now my eyes have seen you. I've seen you because I've seen all that you've opened my mind to. I've seen all that you have done and how vast you are. And I've recognized that even though the suffering is real, you also are real. And who you are is amazing. And you can be trusted. We'd love for the story to end by God explaining exactly why He did what He did. Why He allowed what He allowed. I imagine those first disciples wondered the same thing as they saw Jesus dying on the cross. God, why did you allow this to happen? And I suspect there's no one in here that hasn't been through something that you haven't deeply wondered in your mind and your heart. Why did this happen? Why is my relationship on the rocks? Why is my job ending and I don't have anything else in its place? Why is my child sick and I can't find healing for them? Why am I dealing with these ongoing health problems that no one has an answer for? Or whatever your concern is, whatever your struggle is, Suffering and struggling is a common experience for all humans. And the answer, difficult as it seems, is trust. Trusting that God knows. Trusting that God is good. And the only way we can really experience that trust is by trying it. So I encourage you today, when you think about what you're struggling through, to do as Job did. Look at your life. Hold up to the Lord what you have done. If you're following Him and you're doing well, hold it up to the Lord. If you're struggling with things and you know you've done wrong, hold that up to the Lord. If there are things that you know you need to do that you haven't done, hold that up to the Lord. But whatever you hold up to Him, even if it is simply just a question, Lord, I have no idea why I'm suffering under this, or struggling with this. Hold it up to Him knowing that He is who the Bible says He is. He is who millions of Christians through the centuries have testified with their lives that He is true and trustworthy. 
And I encourage you today to try in the particular that you're struggling with or you're suffering under to lift it up to the Lord and say, teach me to trust even in the midst of my suffering. May the Lord take this word and apply it to our hearts. May he be honored in our trust in him.